The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who's kind of sad over some cancellations, kind of happy over some renewals. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, the penultimate episode of Castle, of Warehouse 13, and of Person of Interest, and episodes of Supernatural and Revolution, and our sitcom section including the New Girl season finale, Modern Family, and the penultimate episode of The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, Fargo, Orphan Black, and the penultimate episode of Grimm, and maybe even a few more things. But before all of that, we've got a giant-sized news with Nico, with lots of renewal and cancellation news. Yeah, this week's news deals with a bunch of stories dealing with network cancellations and pickups, some of which we get into more detail and others we just mentioned in passing. There are plenty of other pickups and cancellations that had no real appeal to me or this podcast, so I left them off. But here we go with the ones I did choose. Oh, God. NBC cancels community. Students of Greendale, it looks like school's out forever. One season shy of six seasons in a movie, community has officially been canceled at NBC. Network TV axes have been flying left and right over the last 48 hours, or all of this week, really. And ABC, Fox, and others have canceled several existing shows and passed on a number of projects to make room for their new series pickups. At NBC, some of the most devastating news is with this week's cancellation of community. Yes. NBC announced earlier this week that we they were cutting Community one season short of fans' plea for six seasons in a movie. There hasn't been any comment yet from NBC Brass as to why specifically, but it's probably somewhere between ratings not meeting expectations from the network, transitioning to new branding, and operating at too much of a cost to justifiably keep going. Sure, those are typical reasons why networks cancel their shows, but Community defied many of those by staying around as long as it did, despite at times scoring low ratings. Also, note that Arrested Development, Futurama, and The Comeback have been brought back from the dead and community definitely fits that profile for a cult comedy series to be revived all you have to do is add seven to ten years and a cable network or online streaming giant then cross your fingers and you won't have to just watch the dvd box sets over and over again dan were you thinking this was coming or did you think community might survive one more time well i mean most shows their runs are five seasons so i thought that's maybe how far community was gonna go but again it's it's got a strong fan base yeah it really does and and it's a strong enough fan base to revive a show like this. And I think Comedy Central might pick it up. I'm really hoping that one of the other outlets, be it Netflix, Hulu Plus, Amazon Streaming, or another cable network, 
picks it up and is able to run with it for that final season. And then maybe we get a TV movie to call yeah. it quits. That would be a lot of fun. Or, or, or kind of like what they do with the Veronica Mars movie type of situation. Right. Crowdsource it. Yeah. Good idea. I, I really think Community has at least a million really dedicated followers that would be willing to fork over a couple bucks. And, you know, everybody pitches in five bucks and you got five million dollars right there. Right. Again, 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 it might not hit theaters, but but it's possible. Right. And it, it might be VOD or iTunes or something like that. But still, the the solid fans would be willing to jump on that, you know. But be warned, the actors may be hard to get back because I think people are going to jump all over them for other projects. Yeah, but I think with the right project, they could make it so that everybody had the, the same two weeks or three weeks off in between pilot yeah. seasons or in between next season so that they could do something like this, you know, and, and jump in on that, that movie idea. Even if they don't get picked up for another season before the movie, that would be a, a way to, to make right. this work. NBC cancels Revolution after two seasons. After a flying start two years ago when it was the key piece at NBC's upfront presentation, Revolution has just been canceled. The J.J. Abrams-Eric Kripke post-apocalyptic drama is long ways from where it was last season when it was riding high with a lot of buzz and solid ratings behind The Voice on Mondays. The heavily serialized series started to lose steam after the long hiatus between the fall and spring half seasons, and it has been a sort of ho-hum performer in the low-trafficking Wednesday's 8pm slot this season a shadow of its former glory. It has been stable, keeping the lights on in that hour, but that hasn't been enough, especially given the high price tag of the show. The hope for Revolution getting a 13-episode final chapter took a further hit this week when NBC picked up two new series from series producer Warner Brothers TV, including comic book drama Constantine, which has been considered yeah. a potential replacement for Revolution, and keeping Revolution was important to the studio uh, Warner Brothers Television, while NBC was open to letting it go, and it just did. This is not the most surprising news, but I was surprised that this news came before the end of the season. I'm just disappointed that this will mean we probably won't get a conclusion yeah. to the Aaron and the Nanite story arc. That's a bummer. Um, this show got good too late. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. Yep. Yeah, it fixed a lot of the problems that we were having in the second half of the first season and then was really good the second season, but it, by then it had lost a majority of viewers that were going to potentially make it a hit. And so yeah. that, then it was just the people who are really into the show. Kind of almost makes me part of it. Part of me wish they would have just got rid of it after the first 13 episodes. So I wouldn't have <laughs> felt this feeling of disappointment now. Yeah, you know. That it's done. Yeah. But I, this will not be the last we'll see of Garrett Kripke, I have a feeling. Oh, no. Definitely. his not. projects. Gotham officially ordered to series by Fox. Fox has officially given a series order to Gotham, the Warner Brothers TV produced drama centered around a young James Gordon before the days of Batman. The series stars Ben McKenzie as Gordon, Donald Logue as Detective Harvey Bullock, Jada Pinkett Smith as Fish Mooney, Robin Lloyd Taylor as Oswald Cobblepot, Corey Michael Smith as Edward Nigma, David Mazouz as young Bruce Wayne, and Carmen Bakotova as young Selena Kyle. Originally, we reported that Gotham had a straight-to-series order, but it was later revealed that that wasn't quite official. In fact, the project had a series commitment, where Fox would have to pay Warner Brothers a huge penalty if they didn't pick it up to series. Such Ooh. as it is, Gotham wasn't officially a go past the pilot until this last Monday, when it was officially picked up by the network. Additionally, the first trailer has been released along with this announcement and is available on YouTube. For complete de details about the pickup, follow the link in the ACC feed. It's a cool trailer, so check it out. 
it out. Yeah, it's really good. It's got me really excited about this show. Yeah, if you love Batman, then this is a great show. You know, when Ben McKenzie was first cast, a lot of people were like, what? He's he's not going to be the right character and, or right actor for the character. And I'm like, when I saw this trailer, I'm like, they nailed it. Yeah. They nailed it. He is going to be so good. I've liked him in so many things. People still I think of to. him as, what, OC? But he's yeah. he's so much more than just that actor. He's very good, and I think he's going to be great in this series. Yeah, this is going to be his his escape from that. Yeah, and Donald Logue as Harvey Bullock is going to yeah. be really good, too. The, really, I think the casting for this was bang on. It's just really yeah. good with every character. It's going to be good. And you get Jada Pickett-Smith. I mean, that's, yeah. that's quality there. Damon Wayans Jr. made series regular on New Girl. Yes. Looks like Coach will be sticking around for some extra innings. Wayans Jr. appeared in every episode of New Girl since his character Coach returned, but had been listed as a special guest star throughout Season 3. Wayans Jr. was originally a member of the show, appearing as Coach in the 2011 pilot episode, before heading to ABC's Happy Endings after that the series was officially picked up, or renewed, rather. Wayans Jr. was only in second position for New Girl. Good news, as the Coach character has made some major strides after sort of a rocky return, but really has been solid all season. Yeah, they've, they've got him back to where he was, to the pilot. Yeah, really good great. stuff. The CW orders The Flash. It would have been a surprise at this point if it had not occurred, but the CW has now officially picked up The Flash to series. The Arrow spinoff was assumed to be a lock for the network for the next season, but the green light hadn't been officially given until now. The network has also ordered another DC Comics adaptation, iZombie, from Veronica's Mars creator Rob Thomas, plus Jane the Virgin and the Messengers. For more information, check out the link in the ACC feed or head over to Andy's Flash podcast as he discusses the official pickup in this week's episode on his podcast over on his network. Yep, we're excited for this one too. Yep, ABC renews Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and orders Agent Carter to series. ABC has renewed Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and have also officially ordered the new series Marvel's Agent Carter for next TV season. The renewal for S.H.I.E.L.D. was presumed to be a slam dunk after the second half of the season's success, but ABC, per usual, hadn't renewed any of their shows until the last minute. Meanwhile, ABC and Marvel have been staying pretty quiet on Agent Carter, even as word began swirling that the show was likely to become a reality, bypassing the pilot stage. This wasn't as notable as it might have been, given there already was a mini-pilot of sorts via the Agent Carter Marvel one-shot released last fall on the Iron Man 3 Blu-ray. Haley Atwell will reprise her role from the Captain America films in the series, which will help show the establishment of S.H.I.E.L.D. as an organization. Dominic Cooper is expected to have a recurring role as Howard Stark, which will be awesome. Yes. And word is, Agent Carter will likely have a shorter episode order than S.H.I.E.L.D. airing in the middle of the season in S.H.I.E.L.D.'s time slot in between the fall and spring runs of that series. We'll likely get confirmation of that next week as ABC presents their schedule at their upfront. The number of comic book TV series is about to increase dramatically as Agent Carter's order comes on the heels of NBC ordering Constantine, CW ordering The Flash and iZombie, and Fox ordering Gotham this week. This is good news and I'm super excited about S.H.I.E.L.D. getting renewed and am also excited to see where they go with Agent Carter. Could be really great stuff. This is going to help the people that were really, really complaining about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
can be such a huge hiatus. Yeah. It's going to keep up the interest. And expect ATA to make a big announcement about Agent Carter on our finale episode of the Helicarrier podcast. All about the season finale. Yep. And Andy's going to make that announcement. And it's going to be exciting. So check out that. Look forward to that. Because it could be a good show. Yeah, I hope ABC actually follows through with this plan. Because remember, the whole Wonderland was supposed to do the same thing in the yeah. hiatus between the two sides of Once Upon a Time. They decided not to do that, and it really hurt Wonderland's chances. I think they learned from that lesson. Yeah. God, if Agent Carter's going to be a shorter schedule, I think that's what's going to happen. Good Marvel's smarter than that. We I hope. Think. <laughs> As I mentioned a moment ago, NBC picks up Constantine to series. NBC has picked up Constantine, a series based on the DC comic books for the 2014-2015 season. For a description of the NBC show, follow the link in the ACC feed. God, this could be really cool as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. God, it also might tie to the Justice League Dark movie that is in production, but we'll see. We will see. <laughs> CBS cancels The Crazy Ones, Bad Teacher, Intelligence, and CBS have canceled five series in one fell swoop. The Crazy Ones, Bad Teacher, Hostages, Intelligence, and Friends with Better Lives. At the same time, the network gave a last-minute renewal to The Mentalist, which was a huge wow. surprise to me because the show had dropped to its lowest, lowest ratings ever this season, and word was Warner Brothers TV, who produced the series, had begun shopping it to other outlets in anticipation of CBS canceling it. The Mentalist's creator, Bruno Heller, is also the man behind Gotham, Fox's new Batman prequel series. So among the cancellations are many shows that were decidedly off-brand for CBS who thrive on highly rated multi-camera sitcoms and procedurals. Hostages and Intelligence were both more serialized than most CBS one hours, some rare exceptions like Person of Interest aside, and they were built around shorter seasons, something CBS had more success with during the summer with Under the Dome, which is coming back for season two this year. Yeah. Hostages was assumed to be done, especially after star Dylan McDermott signed on to a new CBS pilot, Kevin Williamson's Stalker, which was picked up to series yesterday. There was a tiny sliver of hope for intelligence, but obviously that didn't come to fruition. Among yeah. the comedies, The Crazy Ones and Bad Teacher were both single-camera comedies with a very different feel than the rest of the CBS sitcom slate. Despite the star power of Robin Williams and Sarah Michelle Gellar, The Crazy Ones couldn't hold onto enough of the audience that CBS's hugely successful comedies like Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men provided it. I'm sorry to see The Crazy Ones and Intelligence go because I really enjoyed both of those shows, but none of these decisions outside the renewal of The Mentalist was a huge surprise to me. But still, a disappointing for the two I mentioned because I did really enjoy The Crazy Ones and Intelligence. Well, it's amazing that the two sitcoms that were really hyped for its star power because of The Crazy Ones and Michael J. Fox both did survive their first seasons. Yeah. That's huge. It is. Fox is supersizing Sleepy Hollow for season two. Fox has announced nice. that it's expanding the second season of its super mega awesome hit series Sleepy Hollow instead of sticking with another cable style 13 episode run, which was partly credited for the show's success this past season. The network yeah. is looking at ordering 15 to 18 episodes for round two. Oh, that's not so bad. Yeah, but it's definitely cause for concern since it could potentially mean we'll see a decrease in quality or the possibility of filler episodes when the show returns in the fall. I'm willing to wait and see what kind of story the writers have planned, but this is typical networks not paying attention to what actually works and just seeing the t potential for more dollar signs. I hope this doesn't screw up a great show for season two. It definitely could, but it could also just be me overreacting. If it was 24 or 22, I'd be nervous. Yeah. 15's what the following did, but the following yeah. ran afoul of having a few filler episodes this season as well. So I'm just, I'm concerned that 10 to 13 is really the money range and you... Yeah. You have you have to be really tight with your stories 
pace because there's not a lot of time. So I think the 13 episode was probably the best bet for this. I'm not going to be upset when I get two more episodes or five more episodes as long as they're quality. The only thing that makes me nervous is that the following was not as good in the second season. Yeah. So. Yep. The CW says nope to Supernatural Bloodlines. Kind of surprised at this. The CW jumped into the fall 2014-2015 fray on Thursday, ordering four pilots to series, including Arrow spin-off The Flash while passing on the Supernatural offshoot. The network has officially passed on the proposed Supernatural Bloodlines spin-off. Audiences got a taste of Supernatural Bloodlines last week when the backdoor pilot aired as a Supernatural episode. The Godfather with Fangs concept followed Enos, the son of a cop who discovered that Chicago was run by five monster families after his girlfriend was killed. There was also some forbidden love between a werewolf and a shapeshifter and a bar where monsters hung out. Most of TV.com, IGN.com, TVGuide.com, and other sources we pull news from on a weekly basis did not like the backdoor pilot and universally agreed that this was good news that this was not picked up. Can I guess, Dan, that you agree or are you, you said you were surprised, but is that because you thought this was a pretty much solid bet? Yeah, I I thought this was going to work out. Okay. It was better than I thought it would be. Okay, yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people were tired of Supernatural, and that's why they were against the spinoff. Okay. Maybe if it had a recognizable supporting character that it already had a following, maybe it would have been done better than new characters, but I don't know. Okay. Really, who's left for them to use? Right. Speaking of Supernatural, Misha Collins to return as series regular for season 10. This makes sense. Misha Collins will be back as a series regular for season 10 of the CW series. The actor made his debut as Cassiel in the season 4 premiere and was promoted to regular cast member the following year. He was then taken off contract at the end of season 6, but still continued to recur. Collins once again became a series regular during the current ninth season and even directed an episode. The CW gave an early renewal order to the long-running series, but passed on the spin-off Supernatural. God, I'm surprised it's not been announced that season 10 isn't the final season. They are going to ride this puppy as long as they can, I guess. I guess till it dies. Until it dies. And that's sad. Yeah. Larry Wilmore's The Minority Report to replace the Colbert Report on Comedy Central. Comedy Central's search for Stephen Colbert's replacement has officially come to an end. Larry Wilmore, who has served as The Daily Show's senior black correspondent since 2006, is getting his own half-hour show in the 11.30-10.30 Central time slot, according to The Hollywood Reporter. In addition to his acting credits, which include recent appearances on ABC's Happy Endings and Malibu Country, as well as Nickelodeon's Instant Mom, Wilmore also boasts a full behind-the-scenes resume having created Fox's The PJs and The Bernie Mac Show. This is a great selection by Comedy Central, and it's nice to see a little diversity in the late-night talk show arena. For sure. NBC to host Olympics through 2032. Wow. NBC is staying in the Olympics business for years to come. Because it's the only thing that works. NBC Universal on Wednesday announced that it has extended its partnership with the International Olympic Committee through 2032, ensuring that NBC Networks will retain the sole Olympic broadcasting rights for the next nine games. The extension of our partnership with the IOC is unprecedented in scope and is the longest U.S. Olympic sports rights agreement in history, CEO Steve Burke said in a statement. Our many platforms, including broadcast, cable, digital, and mobile, will now have this enormously popular and profitable programming as a centerpiece for almost two more decades. From what I heard through NPR, this is the first time ever that the contract was not bid, but was quietly brought to NBC and asked if they wanted to renew slash extend their contract. So it was not even bid to the other networks. That's how much the IOC and NBC have joined their partnership. So, really interesting. They do a good job with it. Yeah, it is. They've they've had a pretty 
good run the last maybe 20, 20 yeah. years, I think, they've been doing it. It's yeah. been pretty good stuff. So, yeah, this is, this is good news for NBC, which has had some trouble <laughs> yes. in the past. And probably the Olympics are what have kept it you know, in, in the black. Yes. So, and that's the news with Nico for this week. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to talking about a show. Got a very high-quality network called HBO. Okay, this show is called Game of Thrones. Okay, we're going to talk about the episode first on this day. Cersei and Tywin plan the crown's next move. Danny discusses future plans. Jon Snow begins a new mission. I'm going to start out this week's Game of Thrones discussion by saying every time Littlefinger appears on screen, the Imperial March from Star Wars starts playing in my head. Because his plans to take over the Southern Kingdoms are really as dastardly as the Emperor's. Especially with the reveal of this episode that Littlefinger used his charm to manipulate Sansa's aunt into killing her husband, kind of blaming the Lannisters to fuel his bad quest for power. Nico, is anyone going to catch on to just how dangerous Littlefinger is? Can I actually do something? Dan, one of Littlefinger's greatest accomplishments, much like the Emperor you just compared him to, has been his ability to hide in plain sight. Nobody even knows Peter Baelish is behind some of the most important happenings in the Seven Kingdoms, but he is the puppet master pulling all the strings. Much like Palpatine's rise to the Chancellorship, nobody was aware that he was the Dark Lord of the Sith, pulling all the strings and lining up and then knocking over all the dominoes that were needed to put him in that position. Littlefinger has been setting up dominoes in hopes to eventually knock them down in order to either improve his positioning or maybe eventually sit behind the throne himself. For Littlefinger to be successful in his ultimate goals, he will need to remain hidden in the shadows. I can't say if anyone becomes aware of his machinations, because that would be considered a spoiler, of course, but where I am in the books, he's still working in the shadows. Good sneaky little devil. Yeah. God, he makes me so angry. God, the actor's so good at making me frustrated. To me. Yeah, he, he is brilliant for this role. Absolutely his attitude. Oh. Perfect. But I don't think he could play anything but a villain. I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't handcuff him and say he couldn't. I think he's just exceedingly good at it, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, I could very well see him. He's got first, skill. He's got skill. So I could see him doing whatever he puts his. The first thing, first time I saw this guy was the Shanghai Knights. Yeah. The Jackie Chan movie. Good, he drove me nuts. Yeah. He's, he's exceedingly good at that. Like I wanted to jack the guy in the face. And it's the same way here. So, you know, just somebody's got to get him. Yeah. Come on, Jerry, and get with the program, buddy. Maybe that's coming. I don't know. I'm probably forcing you to keep your mouth shut, Nico. That's what I'm doing. Often, often yes. on this discussion. <laughs> it's like, just shut up now, Dan. Gonna explode. Okay, by the way, ever since she first appeared in season one, Sansa's Aunt Liza gives me the creeps. Yeah. That relationship she has with her son is just messed up. Again, that goes for this mad jealousy she has for for anyone who's given little figures affections. In my opinion, I've seen these flaws as something that's going to get Lysa killed, and maybe it's Sansa who kills her in self-defense, because as it was foreshadowed, Sansa is not a killer yet, according to Tyrion. So, Nico, is it possible that I'm onto something with this theory? Dan, that makes a lot of sense and is very good theory, but you're correct that Sansa is not a killer, so don't expect her to kill Lysa even in self-defense. Tyrion says not yet, but I think he's kind of foreshadowing that that's a possibility if she had stayed against I, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going further. This jealousy of Liza's is something that will be her undoing. Be it that she becomes jealous of the wrong person, or she puts too much faith in Littlefinger. Her jealousy will be her undoing. 
Okay. Good. Speaking of angry and jealous people, we're going to move to King's Landing, where Cersei was the primary focus. Good. In the scene she had with Marjorie, it was made very clear that Cersei had reached the point of depression. But I wasn't really sure if she was throwing up the white flag with Marjorie marrying Tommen or throwing fuel on the fight standing away. Again, I think we're supposed to be unsure on this because Cersei is a very two-faced character. But, Nico, what did you make of Cersei's motives behind this conversation? Dan, we're meant to, at this point anyway, feel like Cersei has become despondent and resigned to the plans of her father to marry her and Loras and Tommen to Marjorie. But Cersei was also making it clear that she still had control over Tommen, and if Marjorie wanted to still be queen, that she would need to fall in line with Cersei's plan for Tommen as well. But because of Cersei's past, we should be wary of this seemingly despondent and depressed mood she is in and be aware that she is always scheming. Much like we just talked about with Littlefit, be aware that she could just be biding her time to get her new plan set up and not rock the boat until she knows what to do next. She may also be so deep in mourning that she can't think straight and just wants to get through the trial, kill Tyrion, and then figure things out. So we just don't know at this point what what is going on and why she all of a sudden had this about face with Marjorie. Yeah, I, I could get that. Yeah. I mean, she's somewhere we always need to be careful and weary of, for sure. God, it was just weird seeing her. Keep it let her guard slightly down a bit here. But again, with losing your son, I see how that does that to people. Or does that to her. Right. Yeah. And death always has a way of making characters on this show do interesting things. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> following up the conversation with Marjorie was a chat between Cersei and her dear old dad, where he kind of revealed they've been broke for quite some time. And that makes me wonder if the inability to pay the bank back will lead to Tywin's downfall. Not the armies being built by Danny, Stannis, and the White Walkers. Nico, is this something you see as a possibility? Yeah, that's definitely something that will become contentious and a real problem for Tommen's kingdom and rule going forward if they do not find a way to raise money to pay for the war. Could it mean more taxes for the peasants and nobility? Probably. Which, of course, is not something that makes for great TV, but is something that you'd expect to be discussed in a novel form. I'm not sure how they how the show will deal with that, but I imagine that it will do so dramatically because everything they do in the show seems to make yes. it more dramatic. Anyway, in reality, those are things that we will need to see addressed when things finally calm down now that the new king is crowned. But then again, two weddings are in our future, a fortnight from Go now back. and again a fortnight after that. And we all know to be wary of weddings in this series. More weddings are coming, oh no. <laughs> yeah, well, we know Tommen and Marjorie are going to be married within a fortnight and then within a fortnight after that, it will be uh, Cersei and Loras. Which, in other words, could be dead. <laughs> well, something's going to happen. Something between now oh, and then God. is going to happen. More heart attacks for the viewers. Right. And, of course, we have the trial and Ugh. whatever comes of that. Well, hey, trial sounds like a negative thing. And weddings are normally happy. And it's the reverse in Game of Thrones. It's opposite day in the Game of Thrones universe. So maybe trial is a good thing. <laughs> well, we, we, we've seen Tr- Tyrion already been tried once. Okay. And that was uh, unsuccessful, or it was successful in his case. So what we'll see how it goes this time. I think it will go different. Oh, no. Not necessarily the outcome will be differently, but it's not going to go the same way as the one in the Eerie. Oh, boy. That's for sure. Anyway. Uh-oh. Well, moving off into the desert, I kind of liked how Danny made the decision to go back and maintain the orders in the city she conquered on her own. They, they had slipped back into chaos because she's like, that's not cool. I need to go back and fix it. 
So I like that because it was different to go through the process. And, you know, the leader usually having to learn some hard lesson to realize that they need to be better. And really, this was another example that proved that Danny really is the noble leader meant for the Iron Throne. Because unlike everyone else, vied for power. Danny knows what she does not know and has patience to learn. Although... With this great character development set aside, I don't know if readers and viewers watching the show have the patience to watch Danny take this course of action because it puts her arrival in King's Landing way off into the future. And part of me is wondering if Danny is ever going to get there based on the way George R. R. Martin barely ever has his characters stories cross over unless they are related to each other. And even then it's sometimes fairly. Nico, what's your thoughts on the decision Danny made? And do you think she's ever going to get to King's Landing? Dan, now you know what I mean when I said her story in Marine was some of my least favorite in the entire book series. It's important for sure because we will see her learn to be a queen and how to rule over people and deal with the business of running a kingdom. But it can be tedious to read. There is action, intrigue, and all that involved in her troubles in Marine and Slaver's Bay, but it was just not as intriguing as dragons, white walkers, and the battles of the Seven Kingdoms have been. But rest assured, it is important for what comes out of the time in Marine and how it does interact and cross over with characters from other story arcs. Be patient with it and it will pay off in the end, but it may seem boring at times while we get there. There's definitely a reason to be excited about where this eventually will go, but the actual time in Marine and her trying to free Slaver's Bay again, that all can get very tedious, although eventually it pays off. Yeah, it just, I mean, I'm so excited, so... I, I always felt like we got hyped up about her going to King's Landing. Uh-huh. And it's like, is that really ever going to happen? You know? We've been waiting five books for it. Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I get hyped up for these characters to maybe, like, interact or cross over with each other or whatnot. And then, I mean, nothing ever comes of it. Or you say to me, that's not going to happen, really. Well, it, it's like, it builds. It's building. And it's building slowly. So, eventually, we're going to get a very big and good payoff. But... Sometimes the weight we have is excruciating. But it's almost too much to try to do it all in one big final book. And I feel like that's where it's going. Well, in the fifth book, in the fourth book, some of this is, some things are started to be resolved in the sense that some of the character arcs and some of the storylines start to merge or interact and cross over. So you see, you see additional stories where two characters who were completely separate now are in the same area and they're working together or they're fighting against each other then you see someone you totally did not ever see interacting with somebody else in a completely different setting you're used to seeing that person so a lot of stuff gets shaken up in these fourth and fifth books and which will be the fifth sixth season maybe that seventh season but it's all going to depend on how they break up the final two books that have already been done and the two books coming and how they break that into the TV series on when we actually see it but there is things are going to move it's just just not necessarily Danny's story moving in the way that we thought. I mean, she's going to interact with other people or some characters we don't even know yet are going to emerge. And some of that's going to happen this season in the next couple, five episodes. Okay. But it's also going to be other people from other locations may eventually interact with Danny. And that might be in Westeros. That might be in Marine. It might be in Pentos. I, I, I'm not going to say where these interactions happen, but she does start to eventually interact with others in their stories but before she can get there she has to learn to be a queen and part of that is freeing marine completely ruling it and then going back and making sure that astapor stays free city and yunkai remains a free city otherwise what was the point of any
any of it if she can't hold her power. And the Seven Kingdoms are going to see that she was on it. She, yes, yeah, she was able to liberate them, but was not able to rule them. And that doesn't bode well for her being the queen of the Seven Kingdoms. Right. So this is all important for her to make her claim on the Seven Kingdoms. But, you know, it gets a little boring. Quite after checking in with Danny, we got a couple of three seeds with Arya. Quisting off the people she wants to kill. Call before going to sleep. Kanika was the purpose of Arya. Telling the hound his name was on the list. Could attempt to make him afraid of her. Could she truly intend to use the skills? The hound began teaching her in this episode. Because a way to eventually kill him. You know, the hound is never really going to be afraid of Arya. As yeah. we saw in this episode, that he did not take her sword skills seriously. But this was merely a way for Arya to have the hound for him to take her seriously. Maybe not to kill her, but n- not see her as just a dumb little girl anymore. Okay. She wants him to know that he wronged her and she will never forget that no matter what he does on their little adventure here together. So he's saved her life and right. you know she might be otherwise owe him for that. But she wants him to know that whatever he does he is never going to be off of her list. That she will always hate him and blame him for the death of her friend. Yeah, that makes sense. That was pretty clear cut there. I just want to clarify. Sure. Finally, a combination of both Bran and Jon Snow's storylines were covered at the end of the episode because the attack on Craster's Keep led by Jon made up for the lack of action with last week's slave revolt. They gave Bran the opportunity to prevent Locke from kidnapping him by possessing Hodor. Now, for those of you worried that the speed would deviate from the books, Jon and Bran did not cross paths. Can this seed? So I don't think anything deviated from the original storyline. But Ika, why do you think they had this near miss set up between John and Brad on the TV show when it wasn't in the books? Were you okay that a new scene like this took place? Dan, I think it was, as you suspected last week when I talked about this being different from the books, that this scene was to keep Brad's story interesting and give his story something to do before he starts heading north again to the yeah. tree. Since this never happened in the books, I thought it was a great way to add some action to Brad's story. So yeah, I was okay with this new scene and the way they dealt with it in the show here. I have a slight spoilerish discussion here, but since the show seems to not be mentioning it or going this route, I'll delve into it here because I don't think I'm going to spoil anything from the TV show. One of the reasons I think they had Bran and his crew go to Craster's Keep was because it allowed for some action as I mentioned because most of the action involved in Bran's story, North of the Wall, revolves around a character named Coldhands. I mentioned Coldhands last week, but in the books, Coldhands saved Samwell Tarly, Gilly, and her son when they were overwhelmed by whites, lost in the haunted forest after fleeing Craster's Keep and address Sam as brother. He takes the two under his protection and takes them to the Black Gate at the Night Fort located underneath the wall. He cannot pass through himself due to the wall's magic, but he charges Sam with bringing Bran Stark and his companions whom Coldhands is expecting to meet him, so he had some foreknowledge of that. Sam ends up finding Bran and bringing him back. He looks and talks as if he's a ranger of the Night's Watch. So this is a character we have not seen. He seems to be dead, but also not a white or a white walk. He seems to be something else. Now, I have suspected that he could potentially be Benjamin Stark, but a half-dead version of him, like a white, but something different, because he has black eyes, not blue eyes, like a white has, and he has frozen solid hands, that's why they call it Cold Hands. Cold Hands is dressed in the mottled blacks and grays of the Night's Watch, with a scarf concealing his face. His hands are black and cold as ice, as I mentioned, and he rides a great elk. He also has a flock of ravens that fly under his command. 
man. It is mentioned also that he does not breathe, hence being half-dead or undead. Though there is some contention surrounding my guest of Benjamin Stark because the children of the forest, another thing not discussed, is discussed in the books but not in the show, and essentially they're a mysterious non-human race that originally inhabited this continent of Westeros long before the arrival of the First Men during the Dawn Age, more than 12,000 years ago, and have not been seen by men in thousands of years, but we will eventually see them. And I'm not sure if we're going to see them in the show but uh that is something that we will eventually has to be brought into the show i think but they're important anyway they say that cold hands died long ago meaning more than three years ago when benjamin went missing because they lived for so long a long time for them would be like centuries not three years (laughs) okay anyway most of the action in brand's story is about cold hands killing the mutinous night's watch as i mentioned last week something john did in this episode and escorting bran and his crew north above the wall towards the tree from Bran and Jojen's dream visions. So by having Bran's crew head to Craster's Keep, it combines or addresses some of those story elements into the TV series without delving into the confusion surrounding the Cold Hands character being left out of the TV series. Okay. So I'm glad that Bran and John didn't have a reunion this week, and the show did a great job of Jojen explaining exactly why that could not happen. Because yeah. Bran didn't really need John to escape. He needed the distraction for sure, but there was no need to bring them together and then have to have Bran re-explain his mission all over again to someone else. Plus, there's no guarantee that John would have let Bran go, and there's no way Bran and his group could ever overpower or escape if John decided to drag them back to Castle Black. Better to not have to deal with that. You know, essentially not have the writers paint themselves into a corner. That's why I think it was important for Jojen to say, we can't do this and explain. And it worked. Yeah. You know? I agree. Was the Cold Hands character you think excluded due to the cost? I think it was more con- life. confusion. He okay. would Because he would have been like another white and since there's nothing yeah. really to explain it without inner monologue or without descriptions, it would have been uh, yeah. a confusion to the story. Because we gotcha. would be like, wait, is he a white walker? Is he a white? Is he a... What, what is he? We don't know really what he is. We just know he's other than the white walkers. And actually, in the books, the white walkers aren't called white walkers. They're called others. But th- that's, that's not important. We call them white walkers because <laughs> that's a cool... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you're stuck only having to use rely on visuals, yeah. Yeah. Let's see where they did that. All right. Well, hopefully we can keep this short here because I know we had a long news section. And sure. This actually got kind of long. Nico, was there anything I missed in the review of this week's episode or anything of importance to the books yeah, that you well, want to mention? Essentially, a large, all that information about cold hands was important, but yeah. it's not addressed in the show. So, you know, I just wanted to bring it up so people would have a, a, an idea of what was going on. We also heard that John Aaron was murdered by, by Liza and not the Lannisters, as we suspected. And that meant that Liza and Littlefinger, Littlefinger were the cause of the war, the death of Caitlyn Stark. Ned Stark, Rob Stark, and thousands of other non-Starks, including, in a way, the king himself. If you're looking for someone to hate now that Joffrey is dead, Littlefinger is a prime candidate. Yeah, I know a lot so. of people are like, well, who do I hate now? Who's the guy I want? Littlefinger, come on. <laughs> I mean, not Take only did he it. seemingly facilitate the death of Joffrey, but he also put the story of the entire series into motion. Earlier, the show would have had us believe in a roundabout way that Cersei had killed Jon Arryn in order to keep her incestuous offspring a secret and maintain power and the throne. But it was Lady Liza who poisoned her own husband, of course, at Littlefinger's behest. 
Yes. Also, we know that Liza and Littlefinger had a tryst back in the day, and it makes me wonder if Robert Aaron is in fact John Aaron's son, or maybe Littlefinger's. It should be at least something you're wondering about. Ugh. With Joffrey dead and Tommen now sitting on the throne, there's really no more outright malevolence coming from the capital city. There's no imminent threats, really, unless you count Cersei trying to kill off Tyrion, but that wasn't even addressed this week. And really, you can't discount that much, that too much, because it is an important aspect of this season. Big stuff is to come out of that story arc in the second half of the season, and yeah, with this episode, we are now unbelievably halfway through the season. I can't believe it. Yeah. Bran using Hoder as a giant ass-kicking puppet or vessel was some, somewhat given away by the previously on in uh, yeah. thing, which reminded us of the scene when Bran entered Hoder's mind last season. But it was still cool to see Hoder used like a real half-giant, snapping Locke's neck like <laughs> just like a dry twig. It's something Hoder, given all his strength, would probably never do on his own, being such a gentle giant. But with Bran jumping into his body and seemingly doing it with much more ease than he did the first time, it makes you wonder if that's a possible further thing because Hoder is as simple as an animal so it seems likely that Bran may use that technique if they ever get in trouble again. There was a review on Entertainment Weekly that described it as a Hodor smash. <laughs> yeah. Which I liked. Yeah. Also the scene when Bran and the Reeds were all tied up felt like it was the longest we'd spent in this with this arc during one scene in quite a while. Yeah. And the longest we'd ever really dwelled on Jojen's own seeing powers. And I love that moment when he told Carl that he saw his body burning later tonight. Such a badass moment for Jojen. I liked it. The look on Sansa's face when Liza told her that she would be marrying Robin was priceless. It told us that Sansa was better off here in the Airy, but not much better off. She still would not be in charge of her own fate, and other people were making decisions for her. Just the look on her face was just priceless. Tyrion was not even in this episode, but you almost didn't notice it was so good, but almost didn't notice is my point, because he's my favorite character still alive, and so and that's about all I had for this week. But yeah, the Tyrion thing was a big, big misstep. Not a misstep, but big miss. You know, I, I missed him. It was the first time I can remember that. And I have a feeling this episode's going to be a whole lot of Tyrion. The next one. Exactly. We're going yeah. to get a lot more from him, from him and about him in the coming episode. Right. Can I think that covers Game of Thrones? Yep. Come for this week. Actually, Andy and I are going to save once upon a time for next week for a finale discussion. Okay. Um, we just thought it'd be easier to cover all of it in one final scoop, so that's how we're going to do that. Okay. And with that, we're going to move on to a big episode of Castle that wrapped up its one of its major story arcs, maybe in a way that that, that made Nico and I maybe not that excited, but I thought it worked nonetheless as it all wrapped up. So let's talk about the Castle episode, Veritas. A secret investigation conducted by Beckett related to her mother's murder goes awry when a man she has been surveilling is killed. When evidence links Beckett to the victim, she and Castle become the targets of a manhunt that puts both of them in grave danger. This was it, the resolution to the overarching mystery that's been a part of this show since day one, revolving around the murder of Beckett's mother. Okay, for the conclusion to it all, which we'll get to in a minute, it was pretty good, but the road getting there was a little rough, because this episode kind of went with a plot line that we've seen a lot of times before, got police procedurals. Got one of the main characters, which in this case was back getting framed. Because this is a plot line that Castle actually has used before with this other big bad, the triple killer. Now, Nico, I know this was two reasons, two big reasons that you had against watching this episode. But as I thought about it, really, what other ways do the writers have left or Senator Beckett to go after Beckett, get away for her to take the fight to her? He had already tried to assassinate her. 
Use the people she cared about as leverage. Could even put her in a position where she had to save his life. So I feel like that the writers decided to wrap up the Senator Brackett storyline because it really couldn't go beyond the guy framing Beckett. Because that was even stretching it in our opinion. Nico, I agree with you that maybe something different should have been done than Beckett being framed to wrap up her mother's murder mission. But I'm like the writers on the show, being at a loss. Okay, coming up with another idea. Okay, what would be your suggestion? Dan, I'm not sure exactly how they could have gotten to the second half of this episode other than framing Beckett, but if they could have started in the scene where Beckett was attacked in the hotel room and started the episode there or just before that when she escaped from the police department, then I think it would have been better. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we needed the scenes leading up to that point, and as far as this terrible plot device goes, this was one of the better uses, but I despised it nonetheless just because I'm really sick of it. I mean, right. all is well that ends well I guess so I can't complain about it too much because I did really enjoy the way they wrapped up the center of the bracket arc but I don't see a better way of doing it it's just you know there had to have been something like yeah that. kind of really in following up that thought Nico did you feel that the writers going the route of framing Beckett made the conclusion of her mother kind of anticlimactic yeah, in a way, I did, because the climax of the episode was rather her proving her own is innocence rather than solving her yeah. mother's murder, which is a problem. Sure, the wrap-up was focused on her getting to arrest Senator Bracken in the final moments, but the climax of the episode was when she was arrested and found the proof that showed she had been set up and that Bracken was a murderer. Thus, I would say that it did feel anticlimactic for a major story of the series to be wrapped up this way. Not horrible. Not horrible. It's still pretty good, but it did feel like the wrong climax was emphasized. Well, it kind of, a little bit was like they kind of jumped the gun, got the end of season four, beginning of season five, with solving it. Yeah. Like, we knew Bracken's the bat was the bad, or the killer for, what, two years now? Going on it? Yeah, yeah, I think it, yeah, it's been about two years. Okay, so that was, I think, one of the things that heard it made it have to go destruction, because because we knew who he was, I knew he was the killer for so long now. Yeah. God, really, every episode leading up to this point has been rock solid, and the end was decent. Yeah, it wasn't horrible. I mean, we've seen much worse on many other shows, but yes. we, we just expect a lot from Castle because we're usually given good stuff really good stuff so when it's not it, it stands out to us a little bit more but this episode even though it had its problems it still really had that good stuff oh yeah yeah the second uh, half was solid just absolutely solid yeah I mean the actors we love on this show really flourished under the material I mean we saw very clearly that Becca and Kessler love each other no matter how bad things get Ryan Esposito forever remained their loyal backup squad with Captain Gates even kind of joining in on that philosophy yeah exactly which was nice to see and in addition to that Jack Coleman gave a great villain performance because Senator Bracken, especially in the hotel room scene. Yep. Great stuff. God, it was really great to have Ruben Santiago Hudson back as Captain Montgomery in flashbacks. God, especially when he came to the payoff of his, of his character being the one behind creating the recording that ultimately brought Bracken to justice. God, Nico, are you in agreement that the kind of episode did have some of its shining lights in it despite this Beckett framing thing? Absolutely, Dan. The second half of this episode was solid as I mentioned. Yeah. Take out Beckett having to prove her own innocence and this would have been the climactic and exciting conclusion we expected for the murder of Beckett's mom and taking down Sam Bracken. Like I mentioned before, if the episode had started with Bracken finding out some other way that she did not have the file on him anymore and coming after her in that hotel 
room, but probably make it her apartment instead since she wouldn't have been on the run. Then it would have made the episode work so much better in my opinion. Get rid of the first half and Beckett having to prove her innocence and this is a perfect episode, or a much better episode at least. Also, like you, I really enjoyed seeing Captain Montgomery back in the flashbacks this week and felt like it was a fitting wrap-up to his character's arc that not only did he save Beckett's life when he sacrificed himself in the, was it season three finale? Yes. Season three finale. But he redeemed himself by giving Beckett the evidence that ultimately led to her, her taking down Bracken. So he redeemed himself it for the murder in addition to sacrificing himself. Great working of him back into the story this week. Absolutely loved it. Thought it really good. Yeah, I mean, I thought that justified the whole thing. Yep. That sold it off. But really, that was my favorite episode of the arc. Was the one with Montgomery yeah. being killed? Yeah, that really was good stuff. Episode. Yeah, really stuff. good. So I was glad that there was a nice silver lining added to that episode. Very, very good. Brought my family very pleased as well because they also loved that episode as well. And I liked how the recording was hidden in the elephants on the desk. Yeah, just based by its symbolization of family. Got Becca and Castle getting married, possibly in the next week's episode. I thought this was kind of like a almost a message from Beckett's mom from the grave, saying, "Go out! I want you to move past this. I want you to be happy now." Because I thought that fit nice to some of the personal problems Beckett's been having this season about her mom not being able to be there for her wedding day. So I thought that was nice as well. And then the scene where they nailed Bracken at the press conference. Great moment. Very triumphant moment for the whole group. God, I loved that Esposito got to put his two sets in there as well. Good stuff. So, Nico, were you satisfied with that like final five minutes where Bracket finally got what was coming to him? And do you think the story arc's over? Or are we going to get like a trial episode like Bones did with the Grave Ticker? Because it's also possible that the drug cartels and people funding Bracket will be coming back after Beckett was a payback. You know, Dan, I was satisfied with the way this wrapped up, and especially those last five minutes. And I think this great story arc, I think it's over. I don't think we need a Gravedigger-like trial episode because the evidence is pretty damning, and there is no need to continue this now that they have essentially brought him down. As for the drug cartel coming after Beckett, I think that the guy they killed to frame Beckett, and I'm forgetting his name uh, in this episode. I know him as Laravie from Last Man Standing. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> he, he was the one running that business, and since it was pretty much set up only to fund Bracken's criminal enterprises and his campaign, there won't be much left after Bracken goes down to really go after Beckett anyway. So no, I think this episode pretty much cleared up everything dealing with Beckett's mom's case and Senator Bracken, so I don't okay. foresee it going I could have, of course, be wrong, and they could try and incorporate some of the, that stuff in there and keep it going. But I think that might be overkill, or right. you know, may even tarnish such a great story arc. I, I think it's better to just move on to the next major thing, like the triple killer coming right. back or something like that. Yeah, and, and that's the other case they have kind of left in the tank. Yep. Could I, and I think that's going to be it. Because I'm hearing rumblings that Nathan wants to wrap up the show before it turns into bones. It goes on too long. Yeah, I think another season, another solid season could be really good. And it could be a nice fond farewell for the, the cast and the crew to say, you know, thanks for coming, thanks for watching, here's a lot of fun in the final season. Because these actors, I mean, easily could get on other shows in the future. Yeah. No problem. And, I mean, they could uh, they could go on and on forever with this show, and, you know, it could be NCIS, where it's still very right. popular in its 12th, 13th season. But even on that show, quality goes down and you get a lot more filler episodes and a lot right. less solid procedural or serialized episodes. So you do want to be cognizant of that when deciding how many more seasons you want to go. Good. 
Can I think Nathan Phillips saying that because as a fan of TV, he doesn't like it when shows go like that. Yeah. So he wants to get out before it turns into that. And, I mean, hopefully for, for our sake and for the show's sake, they realize that and realize when is the right time and they hang up their boots when it's time. Because they don't turn into Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> or <laughs> ER. Or you know, I respect ER a little bit more for doing that than Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> yeah, of course. but I'm not the biggest fan of it, but... ER got pretty them. bad as well. Yes. Except the final season had its good moments. Well, yeah. Once once they knew it was wrapping up, a lot of shows get really get better yeah. in that final season, and they have a lot of people come back and a lot of fun faces and things like that show up just because they know it's going to be the last season, and yeah. that's great. Except that getting there can be real rough. <laughs> yes. All right. So now we're going to move on to an episode of Warehouse Thirteen. That was kind of fun. Got worked into this final season. Got really good. Even though it's been, I think, good all the way through. Yep. Let's talk about the Warehouse Thirteen episode, Savage Seduction. Pete, Micah, and Artie are sucked into a telenovela while helping Pete's ex-girlfriend track down an artifact. I really think this episode of Warehouse 13 kind of marked the final time where everyone involved with the show could sit back and have some fun with the episode before digging into the big final storyline. I needed to wrap up the series. Kind of fun was had in this episode with Pete, Micah, and Artie being sucked into a telenoveva a situation that all their character personalities made quite hilarious. But I think the actor who really stole the show for me on this was Eddie McClugtock. Because he completely handed off to infiltrate the world of the telenovela, providing the ridiculousness kind of amusement that normally gets us TV watchers to stop and watch these Mexican soap operas when using the remote for fast telemundo. Plus, I thought the way Eddie McClintock physically got to beat navigating through the telephone may take a way to follow the story, even for those of you who may have gotten tired of reading sometimes. Nico, are you to agree with me that Eddie McClintock's performance played a big part in making this telephone content work? Absolutely, Dan. Eddie McClintock was amazing and sold the overly dramatic male lead in the telenovela so well. I loved it. As you said, he hammed it up perfectly, especially when he was Pete using the cufflinks to stay himself and had to intentionally ham it up. But he was equally great while being Armando. All I can really say is that I enjoyed this last standalone Warehouse 13 episode before the two finale episodes in the Push to the Series finale. This was a great performance that made it a lot of fun for me and just really showed Eddie McClintock's understanding and love for the character of Pete because he was just amazing. I know a lot of people not the biggest fans of this episode because they were like, come on, let's get to the main stuff. But for me, this was a lot of fun. It was one of those classic Warehouse 13 fun episodes. And it was a chance for Eddie McClintock to just one last time be like, I'm going to be crazy fun Pete and go for it. Yeah, because I really think the next two are going to be drama heavy. And so I really like that he just got to go wacko. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, what was the funniest, wackiest thing we want to see Eddie do? Because they're like, tell it away, though. <laughs> yep. Okay, kudos to the actors for being able to speak Spanish for almost the entire episode. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah. Not something uh, I could do. Got really another big factor in making the Telewave concept work was the writer's ideas of making Carmi Corman for the Carol Burnett shows, Cufflinks and Artifact, to help the warehouse agents maintain their memories. Because Army Corman could never stay in a character. This was somewhat of a dated reference, but I thought it gave Warehouse 13 a sense of quality for knowing their classic TV. Because the way the cuffs flakes were passed around throughout the episode was quite clever, especially with it including that fun Olay sound effect, which made me feel like I was at a Mexican restaurant. Nico, did you think the use 
if Harvey Cufflinks was clever, clever. Once again, Dan, we are on the same page. I thought this was a brilliant artifact use to make it fun and a little ridiculous how it kept changing hands and who knew what was going on and who was fully in character. Classic Warehouse 13 plot device done so well. I, I thought it was perfect. It was exactly what this episode needed. Great. Good as for Claudia and Steve's story, I kind of just wrote it off as a generic warehouse case. Could tell Steve was split in two. Giving us a hilarious performance from Aaron Ashmore as an overly flamboyant Steve, which highly entertained Claudia. Again, for fun, this would have been great to bring in Aaron Ashmore's real life twin brother, Sean, but the split camera technique works fine too. If that's what they did, because I couldn't find anything to deny or confirm Sean Ashmore almost in the episode. Regardless, as I said before, there's something more comical to me when Steve is whammied compared to the other main characters. Can I think this is the one that took the cake? Nico, what was your thoughts on the tale of two Steves? Or were you amused with it as much as I was? Aaron Ashmore as Steve's flamboyant queen side was great. Absolutely fabulous. And partly what I think totally sold it was Claudia's loving that side of Steve and it being paired with Steve's super serious side and the two of them fighting each other, literally. I think you are onto something with Steve getting whammied being much more humorous than when it happens to anyone else on the series. For whatever reason, that's the case. It just is a lot funnier than it happens to him. And this week, it was hilarious. It really did. Yeah, it's classic. I really, I'm surprised they didn't get shot for this because it was such a, because it's a final season kind of thing. I think that would have been amusing for people. But, you know, we could take what we could get. Yeah, I don't think it was needed. I think Aaron's quality enough. He's a good enough actor to do both sides. And, you know, with Tatiana Maslany playing eight characters in Orphan Black, I think Aaron Ashworth could play two. Yeah, he played two very well. Yeah. And finally, I thought the ending scene where Arnie ran into the warehouse to tell Claudia her sister was taken felt tacked on in the episode. But I would have rather had things filled rushed here than during next week's penultimate episode or the finale, because that way the final battle for the warehouse will be mapped out in a satisfied fashion. Because at the end of this episode, feel that tacked on to you as well. Can you feel that it marked next week's episode as the beginning of Warehouse's final battle? You know, I don't think it felt particularly tacked on. I mean, we knew that some things would feel rushed this season with there only being six episodes and a lot to get through before the finale. I think they put the missing sister at the end of this episode, much like you suggested, to get it out of the way here and not add even more to next week's penultimate episode. It wasn't perfect how it fit into this episode, but it worked as a cliffhanger to get us to next week's episode and set set up to face Valda as the final Warehouse 13 Big Bad and set up that final battle. Yep, way to add that Mark A. Shepard is the big bad. Yeah, that's good stuff. I mean, really, just really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, for, for two shows, for this and Supernatural. Yep. Exciting, exciting. Got uh, just really can't wait to see how it plays out. I don't really want to make much of a prediction on it, because I feel like that's going to hurt my enjoyment of it. Yeah, I, I don't actually know, so I'm I'm just really excited to see where they do actually go with Balda and Mark A. Shepard as the big bad. I think they could go a lot of different ways, and... I think it's going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be a big final battle for the warehouse gun that I think may trump what we saw at the end of season three. So I'm excited. Yeah, I think it's going to force Claudia to become the full caretaker. Okay. So I, I think, and I don't know if that means Warehouse 13 becomes Warehouse 14. That's a possibility because Claudia takes over and becomes the caretaker for 14. That's probably going to be somewhere in the finale, I think. But does that mean it has to move and that's why we no longer have the show? That that kind of actually makes a lot of sense, but I don't know how they're going to get there. That sounds like a like a series finale move. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, like Battlestar Galactica ended, and they got rid of Battlestar Galactica. All right. 
scored, you know, different things. God, Buffy ended and they blew up Sunnydale. Yeah, yeah. So it's things like that. God, it makes sense. Okay, with that, let's talk about an episode that set up a finale where I'm really, really wondering what's going to happen here. Because it took it in a direction we didn't see coming, but I think we knew that was going to happen. So let's talk about the person of interest episode, The House Divided. When an unknown entity prevents the machine from seeing the full picture of an impending catastrophic event, it sends the team five separate numbers to help them piece together the bigger picture. Meanwhile, Root's team of hackers arrives in New York. This week's Prison of Interest gave us the backstory behind these two major big bats, revealing their ultimate calls to be noble. But they're going about them in the wrong way. With Greer explained to Fitch, he wants Samaritan to create a world without corruption. Can flashback show me that Collier joined Vigilance to get justice for his brother, who was wrongfully accused of being a terrorist. Nico, did find out the backstory on Greer? Did Collier paint these villains for you in a whole new light? Yes, but with differing effects. For Collier, it made him much more of a sympathetic villain who felt his brother was wronged by the machine and is doing everything in his power to expose the machine and stop it from ever making the same erroneous connections he sees were responsible for his brother taking his own life in prison. I also think he was radicalized by his own guilt for ever having doubted his brother's innocence when faced with the evidence that was presented against him. As for Greer, his motivations did not sway me from viewing him as a villain, but rather just made me realize that he has a misguided sense of what the machines okay. are capable of and how best to deploy and use the machines. He has no concern for safeguards against the machine and feels that a logic-based system is incorruptible, but I think we and Finch know better and that the machine, without the checks and balances that Finch should help install, could easily turn into Skynet. Greer seems ignorant of that risk and therefore uh, he does not become a sympathetic villain in my eyes. Okay. Yeah, and I really felt Collier was more sympathetic yeah. than Greer. What I thought their intentions behind what they did were truly pure evil. You know, I really thought these are guys that wanted to watch the world burn. Oh, that's not so much the case. Right. So that's how they kind of change in my perspective. Oh, yeah. We definitely see them in a different light. But I, but as I said, differing effects on going forward. Like, we understand right. Greer deeper now, but we still don't sympathize with his thinking. Yeah. Collier, we see differently now, but we're much more sympathetic for what started him on this path. Yes, right. he's using the wrong path, and he, he's doing exactly what you said in the sense that he's going about it in in the wrong wrong way. And their ultimate goals may be noble, but they're going about it in the wrong way. I definitely agree with Collier. I I, I don't so much as much any. I still don't as much with Greer. Is, okay. is the point I was making? Yeah, I'm just clarifying things on my end. Sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, got really in that moment where Collier found out, you know, the real fate of his brother. God was confronted by the government saying, we don't really care. He had almost snapped. Yeah. Which was interesting. Because the actor, I thought, played that in a really good way. But with that, is this an example of the machine making a mistake? Because it sounded like they were accusing him of being a terrorist based on information Northern Lights take out from the machine. Right. So was this like the government like misinterpreting them wrong? Or exactly what went on here to cause this? Was it the machine or human interpretation of the machine? I'm not entirely sure. I had sort of always assumed that the machine was not really capable of making mistakes or its error rate was so low that the limit essentially approached zero. But this could be a case of an erroneous connection to a distant connection with terrorism and terrorist ties being made and a false positive being the result. False positives are always a major concern of any predictive model. So this is definitely something that could be a false positive. But there 
there could also have been a conspiracy or some other factor that we're not yet aware of that caused Collier's brother to be accused and then arrested for being a terrorist. I think at this point, we just don't have enough information to be sure. Right. So I think some of that may come out in this quote-unquote trial that we're going to talk about in a minute, but I just don't know at this point where what's going on or what was the cause. Well, you might be onto something with the conspiracy. Because ever since Vigilance has appeared on the show, I've had this theory there's been something which always allows them to kind of stay one step ahead of the person of interest. God, I'm wondering if that's the person who's texting Collier. Yeah. Could he set this all up? What's your thoughts on that, Nico? And really, who is this mystery texter? Is it a new number that's going to be added to the person of interest, Rogue's Gallery of Villains? Or is it someone we've run into before, like Julian Sands' character? Or the guy that was terrorizing the um, 911 dispatcher? You know, Dan, on initial look, both of those characters are good guesses to who it might be. We have not seen Julian Sands' MI6 character since he was introduced, and we were expecting quite a bit more from him this season. Right. The guy, and the guy who was terrorizing the 911 dispatcher also made it his mission to find out more about Finch and after the person of interest team. Though it seems to me that Collier was getting those texts long before this terrorist was even aware of Finch and the person of interest team. So less likely for him to be it. And it also seemed that Julian Sands' character was unaware of the machine when he was in New York. So he would most likely not be the best bet either. So like they're both possibles, but I kind of see reasons why it's not. My guess rather is someone in Control's organization that maybe became disillusioned by the machine program or the control methods and started feeding vigilance information possibly either starting or joining vigilance as a double agent inside control and ultimately later recruited collier individuals that seems to make the most sense with the information we have at this moment at least in my mind that's how i see it that it's somebody who was in control or part of that northern lights program and started becoming disillusioned with what they were doing or realizing that maybe some of this information was not accurate or was being collected in a wrong way. And when Collier's brother was accused, maybe that's not the first time that the machine or somebody got it wrong or manipulated what the machine gave them and made it so that they could do whatever their goal was or make it an easy win so they could get more funding when actually it wasn't a terrorist. Really, and that's where that sort of conspiracy comes into it that we were talking about just a moment ago. So yeah, I see a lot of possibilities here that who it could be and what caused them to be part of this and it's, it's interesting and I'm, I'm hoping Nolan's got something even better planned for us and it just blows our socks off well he does because we didn't think this trial was coming no not. this was out of nowhere yeah absolutely and with that, I mean, I thought final season of the arc was going to be saving Finch and stopping Samaritan. God, and there would be some choice with Samaritan at the end. But I should have known better the show's not that straightforward. Guys, you know, Vigilance enters the fight against Tesla, which was not so surprising. Right. But then they kidnap Fridge Control Greer, kind of Senator supporting Samaritan, to put them on this trial for taking away Americans' privacy. So, Nico, since this trial is being televised as a part of that EMP terrorist attack that I did kind of predict, come has the threat that needs to be stopped in the finale, shifted from Samaritan going on to information about the machine and the person of interest teams operations possibly becoming public. Yeah, I think so in part. Partly now the machine's existence and Finch's anonymity seem to be the most 
serious threat at the moment. But I think Root will continue to be tasked with right. inter- interrupting Samaritans going online and becoming fully operational. But I think Reese, Fusco, Shaw, and maybe some others will be tasked with finding and shutting down the kangaroo court set up to try these individuals. So I think both things are going to be sort of the conflict within the finale next uh, next week. So, so. Okay, we may see former person of interest step up to help yeah. as, as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping that not only Elias returns, but a number of people come out to help. It's like that judge you really like. Yep. And and again, with that being said, Nico, you're absolutely right. Samaritan still remains a concern. Mm-hmm. It might not be as big to some of the characters now. But I liked how she built this team of cockers around her. That was really cool. They kind of gave off this like lone gunman for the X-Files vibe. Yeah, I love that. And so I'm hoping we'll see them again. Or that they'll show up maybe in the finale to help Root in stopping Samaritan, even though she told them to leave. Nico, what was your thoughts on this team of hackers? I mean, do you think they'll succeed in stopping Samaritan? Yeah, I loved the addition of the hackers trio this week. Well, Root has technically been using them for weeks now, but they were new to the show as yes. a trio in this episode. I really liked it. I love your analogy or comparison of them being the lone gunman from X-Files, and I hope they are developed into one-off characters that turn into series-repeating characters that are fan favorite. It's just like the Lone Gunman became on that series. It it all depends on how they're used in the next episode. If they insist upon helping Root, they will all die and Root may fail in her mission. If they are rather sent to help Reese and the rest of the Person of Interest team, which is what I was talking about earlier, maybe some other people, then I think both Root and the Person of Interest team can be successful in their missions and Samaritan will be delayed at least and Finch will be saved, but probably not before some of his secrets and the Person of Interest team is somewhat exposed and the machine is publicly exposed as well to some extent. So I do see the trial exposing them to an extent, maybe not fully, but to the point where it could be detrimental to their their work next Yeah. I don't know. I just hope we see more of it fun. It'll make up for Leon not being around. Because I always say we didn't get to see him again this season. Yeah, you know, I think these three came in to be essentially Leon. <laughs> right. And that's unfortunate because he was, he was great in the three times we saw him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it's unfortunate that they weren't able to bring him back or that they didn't think to bring him back. So they, they need a character like that. I hope these three guys kind of fill that void. Yeah, I agree. Especially if they do episodes where it's just Root kind of mission by herself. Or Root and Shaw. I think that's going to be coming. Yeah. Next season. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, going along with the hackers, another fun aspect of the episode was the surprise of Hirsch being forced to team up with Gumrese and Shaw. The interaction between these three characters stuck in a unlikely alliance was hilarious, even though we only got really five minutes of it. God, I can't wait to see where it goes next week. As long as it doesn't push Busco out of the picture, because Hirsch seems to have a similar grumpy demeanor while working with the person of interest. Nico, what was your thoughts on Hirsch teaming up with Reese and Shaw? Does it have potential for a lot of fun? Yeah, it was a great idea for a limited time. It only works if he's like Fusco in his interactions with the team, in that he is a reluctant participant with Reese and Shaw. Any more than a few episodes, and he will see the actual value in what the person of interest team does, and be less ornery when dealing with them, and lose his appeal to be teamed up with them. Also, so we already have Fusco, so no need for Hirsch as well in the long run. Yeah, God, I can see the potential of him getting killed off in this situation. Yeah, in saving control or attempting yeah. to save control. Absolutely. So keep that one out there, or he's going to double-cross him somehow. Maybe. 
Because he is a good adversary to them. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah. And finally, Nico, do you think this season, come person of interest is going to end with the machine and Fitch creating it, becoming public knowledge on that changing the person of interest team from a vigilante operation to a legitimate security firm working in attention with the government? I'd say yes and no. I see some aspects of the machine and the person of interest team being made public in the part of the trial by vigilance that is broadcast before the person of interest team and decima team and just about everyone busts in, busts that up. I That's going to be a great scene. Yeah. I think in the fallout of the release of that information, it will make working as a vigilante group more difficult for the person of interest team next season. But I do not see that being a reason for the machine or the person of interest team to work officially with the government or stop being the vigilantes that save their irrelevant numbers. I do see the government trying to set up a more above-board version of control that deals with the relevant numbers, and maybe that involves some sort of private firm somehow overseen by Finch's group, but that doesn't really make total sense to me either. I just don't know if I see them working with the government in an official capacity to deal with those relevant numbers. Maybe they do, but I just don't know for sure. So you don't see something like a Angel Season 5 kind of thing, where they're working as a firm or something like that? Yeah, I almost see, see that as being a mistake. Yeah. So I don't see it going that route. I see Jonathan Nolan having a plan with this because it means of mixing the show up and keeping it fresh. But I think it's not going to be maybe this big of a shakeup. Okay. But I like that he planted the idea in our heads right. to keep us interested and speculating. He does a very, very good job of that. Of leaving it open where it can go anywhere, but then wrapping it up in a way or resolving it in a way that's safe. But I, I'm glad he expands our horizons on where it could go. Even though my expanding with him is a little bit more ridiculous than yours. Right. But hey, it works. It does. Indeed. With that, we're going to move into another episode of Supernatural that involves a hunt for a bad guy and actually a wrap-up of the story arc, too. Well, sort of. So let's talk now about the Supernatural episode, King of the Dam. Castillo captures one of Metatron's angels and asks Sam and Dean for help with the interrogation. Dean eagerly accepts, which doesn't go unnoticed by Sam. Meanwhile, Abaddon demands Crowley help her kill Sam and Dean. When he refuses, she reveals her shocking bargaining chip. Also, Castillo sets a meeting with Gadriel. This week's episode of Supernatural established that Cast created his own angelic version of the KGB to hunt down to battle Metatron, which I thought was cool, but I think made the Winchesters a little bit nervous about how much power he had mass in such a short little time. Nico, what was your thoughts on Cass's new acquisitions? I liked it. I also liked how militarily it was run and how nervous and uncomfortable that made Cass at the same time. I'm not too worried about Cass amassing too much power or how quickly he came by it because he's already learned his lesson about how power yeah. corrupts, and thus since he did not really want to lead and is somewhat George Washingtoning it, it up. He, uh, by not wanting the power and willing to give it up as soon as he can, he will not be corrupted by it again. Either. I agree. Yep. I also liked how they called him Commander. Yeah. Felt very like Star Wars ish. Yeah, well, that, fun way. that's the whole military thing that I, I loved how it, angels used to be like a military in, in this yeah. story arc mythos. And so it, going back to that makes him a little nervous, but at the same time, it's what makes all the other angels comfortable. Right. I just thought he was going to drop a Star Wars reference. It's there now that uh been updated with pop culture yeah but we got another one later on in the episode sort of right good yeah good so in addition to showing him his newfound army cast brought in sam and dean to interrogate called metatron's angels could normally normally on supernatural interrogation means lots of blood and violence but much to my satisfaction and enjoyment the writers took things in a different direction by having the winchesters trick the angel into giving them information 
like he was some kid they were messing with, caught a schoolyard. While starting the scene off with the brief hint that the market blade of Cain was making Dean become a hinge. Nico, did you like how they took more of a humorous approach to the old supernatural interrogation scene this week? Very much so. By tricking the moron of an angel into spilling all his secrets by playing to his ego and insulting him and his lack of knowledge was a brilliant way to go about this interrogation. The last thing we needed was another angel torture session or more blood and guts to get information. If we've seen that once, we've seen it a hundred times on this series. Using a humorous, non-violent means this week was a great switch-up that worked brilliantly, story-wise and viewership-wise. I like it. It kept it fresh. Yep. That's what you gotta do. And speaking of keeping it fresh or keeping it enjoyable, it's no secret that we love Mark A. Shepard here on ATA, but I really think this has been his best season on Supernatural, Guys, Crowley. God, I loved how the writers topped it off with reuniting the character with his long-dead son. The way they played off their relationship and Crowley's annoyance that his son was behind the times got me really chuckling all the way through the episode. Although, even though it was mainly played for the laughs of the episode, the introduction of Crowley's son did leave some points of speculation that I want to ask you about, Nico. Such as, do you think there's going to be some significance revealed in a future episode? Because the why is Crowley's son has the same first name as Kevin Tran? God, what effect is Crowley's decision to let his son live in the 21st century going to have on this supernatural universe. I think this may have something to do with the major plot line of season 10 or the last two episodes of the season, but I'm not sure. Dan, I'm not certain there is any connection to Crawley's son's name and Kevin Trans, but maybe there is. I, I just don't. Now, as for Crawley allowing his son to live, I absolutely think that's going to have a major impact on the season 10 story storyline. Something in that timeline will get all kinds of messed up by him not dying on that ship to America, and it will cause major reverberations throughout time and end up screwing up the present or possibly changing something major like Crowley not being the king of hell anymore, or something else completely that I can't even think up of at the moment. Or may cause the return of major villains. Yeah, potentially. Or major allies. Right, right. Good idea if it's a final season, because that's a built-in excuse to bring back people without having to stretch it too far. And it kind of takes an eraser to the idea to Metatron's story, because they may take him off. Yeah, if he's not dealt with before that. Unless he's set it up. Right. It's interesting. God, that's just so we don't go cross-eyed with the time travel stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. I get Jeremy Carver is the one that came up with the mystery spot episode. So, look out. Yeah, I mean... He likes time travel. He does. And moving forward, as for the big moment of Dean killing Abaddon, I thought it was one of the bigger, the better big bad deaths we've seen on this show. Because the Star Wars fan in me was psyched about Dean using the old Jedi lightsaber trick to take out the slippery demon. But what does that mean for the aftermath to her death? Because even though the Mark of Cain apparently gives Dean the Force... Sam surmises that the blade is also having a negative effect on his brother. Again, it's possible the writers could chuck this up to the family versus partnership drama the brothers have been having this season. But with two more episodes to go, I see the blade and the mark having an effect on Dean, where Sam might have to go up against him kind of reverse all the season four finale. Nico, what's your thoughts on my observation? theories. Dan, I too loved Dean pulling a Luke in the Wampa Cave with the Mark of Cain and the Blade this week. All I can say for what the Mark is doing to Dean is, beware the dark side, Dean. Beware the dark side. <laughs> it seems to me that the Mark is yes. somehow seducing Dean to the dark side or corrupting him from within or however you want to say it so it's not the dark side, which fits so perfectly. Anyway, this seduction slash corruption seems to be changing Dean and Timothy Omenson's Cain said that the Mark changes you and can influence you. It probably is trans transforming Dean as well. I, I just don't know how. I'm hoping this does not mean Sam and Dean have to have a showdown at the end of the season, but if it does mean that, I just hope it's, it is both epic and different than what we've seen before. So if they are going to go that route, it needs to be different. Yeah, I think how cast plays a factor in it will be have a, a thing. Same with Gadriel. 
to make a difference. I think you're right. I don't know how, but it is. But really, I think the big thing is going to be Crowley screwing everything up. Because it's Marcus Shepard, you know? I mean, if Warehouse is going to go out with him, guy's the big villain or causing the big conflict in the show. you got to use Marcus Shepard up to connect. Right. Come on. Right. Okay, last but not least, I did like it how Cass met with Gadriel to explain his side of the war. Because it was just another example proving how Cass now has what it takes to be a strong leader following the Leviathan debacle. Because I think Cass may have succeeded on possibly getting Gadriel to join his side because Metatron sending Angel's assassin to attack their meeting when he gets this code of honor. Nico, do you think this means we're going to see a storyline to wrap up the season where Cass, Gadriel, and Sam have to wrangle a mark of Cade affected Bloodthirsty D, who is falling right into Metatron's hands? You know, that would make for a very interesting finale for sure, and I like the theory, Dan. I'm not sure if that's how it's headed, but it makes sense to me, at least from what we know at this point. I'm not sure if Gadriel has been convinced fully to join Cass's side, however, but I do think it is going that way. Some Something Metatron does in the next episode will actually be what I think convinces Gadriel to inform on Metron and tell Cass what is going on and be his spy in his camp. That seems to be the logical next step anyway. And that way Gadriel will feel less like he's betraying his own honor because it'll be because he will feel he has a duty to act and honor dictates that he tell Cass for whatever reason. Thus I do see Gadriel joining Cass against Metatron, but only after Metatron betrays Gadriel's trust and honor and forces his hand. Yeah. That's how I see it going. Yeah, that's pretty much how I see it going. The big thing for me is, I, I don't know, I feel like the right rap of this season is kind of predictable. I, I'm not like... I'm going to watch it, but I'm not like really excited to see how it plays out. Like I am with Person of Interest or Canero or Warehouse coming to an end. Okay. Um, I think next season I'm going to be probably excited for the end because that's a finale. But this just seems like, you know, another supernatural cliffhanger to me. Okay. So, But then again, I may see the penultimate episode. Of course, yet I make it really excited. So, because right, this is episode, this is not the penultimate episode, right? Right. There's one more after, or I mean, one more. Uh, and then a finale. And then a finale. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So maybe this is, it hasn't reached the point where I'm hyped up for it yet because the other other shows have but ultimate episodes so we'll see where i stand next week yeah okay with that we're gonna move on to revolution nico unfortunately wasn't able to catch the show this week kind of he's gonna watch the show and then be able to jump back in with us for the next two weeks right yep okay so that's a good deal so i'm gonna just run through it real quick so let's talk about the revolution episode tomorrowland Truman, empowered with the new authority from the president, launches a mustard gas attack designed to kill Miles and Monroe. To Rachel's disappointment, Miles agrees to join Monroe in a ruthless plot to beat the Patriots at their own game. As Neville faces his own challenge from the Patriots, Aaron grows increasingly alarmed by the power of the nanotech. Can really this episode of Revolution really made up for last week's episode that basically went nowhere. By the Patriots' decision to use mustard gas on Miles and his merry band of rebels, causing some very solid story progression with Miles and Monroe taking the fight back to Wills. Rachel becoming suspicious, Priscilla being possessed by the nanotech that may be setting up a way for Devil to be eliminated from the series by putting an end to his now worthless story. Okay, so all those things were good. We got the progression we needed. That's great stuff. Problems I had with this episode, Devil seeds, of course. They were pointless again. Besides making me cringe, got the side of a patriot getting caught in a bear trap. God, besides that, I don't really know if we need any of his seeds because we already know knew his son was dead. God, we knew that his wife was probably going to get killed. Especially when the actress who played her, Kim Raver, showed up on 24 this week. Other issue I had with this episode, I don't really know if Miles needed to go beside Ben Rose back with his real plan for the mustard gas that went against Monroe. Okay, I just, I really think if Miles was up front of the hospital, Monroe wouldn't have left because, I mean, really, one with this, one could argue that even if Miles came to Monroe with the truth right away, he wouldn't have helped steal the mother gas, the mustard gas. 
But I think Monroe got pissed come left because Miles lied to him instead of manning up and telling Monroe how he felt about his plans for Monroe's face right from the get-go. So, really honestly, Miles created drama where there didn't really need to be any, and so that was weird. And finally, after showing so much potential, get the Matrix-like episode. I was glad that we finally got a lot more of Aaron's storyline with the Nanites. God, really, I don't think I'm ever going to learn to come to the turtles happy together the same ever again. As the nanotech possessing Priscilla made her move, decided to go all Dalek and exterminate on all of humanity. However, even though I'm excited about the survivors of this post-apocalyptic valley of the style like artificial intelligence, that's essentially everywhere. It disappoints me at the same time, because I think this fight is meant for season three. God, we're not going to get one. So really, I'm kind of just left with this bittersweet feeling it's about Revolution's plans for the nanotech, because we're never going to see it come to fruition. Because I think, Nico, when you watch this episode, you're also going to feel that way, too. Can also, really quickly, I think Eric Kripke got a brief cameo in this episode as the soldier that Aaron found dead in the house to possess, Priscilla took over. So that was kind of cool to see him in the show. God, I was glad he got to include himself before the show all kept going up. So that's my thoughts on Revolution. God, it was kind of brief, kind of loose, because I had set this up to discuss with Nico, but I hope you guys follow it. And we'll pick up our discussions to close out the show next week. So with that, let's move on to our sitcom section. So we're going to start our sitcom section with you, girl, the episode Cruise. Season 3 ends with the gang embarking on a cruise that Jess and Nick booked while they were still dating. During the trip, Coach deals with his fear of boats, Schmidt tries to get Cece back, and Winston attempts to reconcile Jess and Nick. Now, as we get into Mountain Family and Big Bang Theory today, I'm going to talk about a lot of the comedy shows that we watch having issues with bringing, bringing in the drama because it takes away from the comedy that people watching these shows are looking for. But New Girl is a show can prove with this episode that it's a sitcom that knows how to bring in relationship conflict without sacrificing the comedy. Guys, the chemistry between Jess and Nick is always great. God, when it comes to Cece and Schmitz romance, almost everything that comes out of Schmitz's mouth is funny. Because you got Winston and Coach that are things up for both him and Nick. Anyway, my favorite comedic moment from this episode was Oscar Nunez, who cracks me up as Ramon, got the proposals, got the appearance, got the crew's safety director, freaking coach out about sailing the high seas, got soothing him with the song, Saving Grace. Yes, I know, I watched the proposal, but what can I say? I like Sandra Bullock and Ryan Brill as actors. Also, there was fun to be had with Schmidt and Winston, because Winston kept screwing up Schmidt's attempts to repress his love to Cece, with lines like, Son of a sea dragon. Oh, and being trapped in a small cruise cabin with six people for three days is just not right. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's New Girl? My favorite comedic moments from this week's episode were Coach's declaration, I'm a man! I take a dump standing up! <laughs> the security guy's comments, Guess I found a grumpy Gus! Boo and hiss! <laughs> Folks, if you see Gus grumpy, Bumping around, give him a tickle. Yes. And everyone coming up and tickling Schmidt throughout the entire cruise. Yes. Great stuff. Coach's lifeboat freak out and the guy trying to calm him down singing Amazing Grace. Yes. All the romantic activities Jess and Nick did together, like sexy yoga and breathing through their genitals. Winston's confession about having nightmares about making out with the other two guys CC has not made out with, Nick and himself. Nick and Schmidt's bunk bed idea. And finally, <laughs> the survivor portrait at the end. This show is freaking hilarious and always good for a laugh out loud moment. Oh, so good. Great finale, by the way. Great finale. So good. I'm always pleased and laughing when I watch this show. Yeah. And really, I, I, I think this is the best comedy on TV. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the one I look forward to most each week. 
makes me laugh the hardest too. Yeah. Okay, with that, we're going to talk about another solid sitcom that, I mean, got a very good episode, but there was one little discrepancy that bothered me about it a bit. Kind of, kind of its future. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode, Message Received. Jay, Gloria, and Manny challenge each other to step outside their comfort zone and try something new. Mitch and Cam's wedding is getting too big and costly, so they need to resort to selling a couple of prized possessions. And the kids play a joke on Phil and Claire. My favorite comedic moment for this week's Modern Family would have to be Phil's reaction to the joke the kids played on him about Claire being pregnant with Phil dishing his buddy on the golf course and making comments to Claire that at first came off as very offensive until she figured out what was going on. I also thought it was funny how the irony behind Mitchell's old phone messages about not wanting to date Phil's cousin kept going right over Luke's head with him being more surprised that his uncle had a beeper than being gay. Although with these moments come the episode being funny, the destruction of Mitchell's Amazing Spider-Man number three was agonizing to watch as an avid comic book collector. And I did not like all the character development being undone over the past five seasons, which Jay decided to not attend Mitchell and Cap's wedding because there was no need for drama. Because I think viewers were already hyped up about watching the two-part wedding season finale based on this family having something zany happening at big events. Plus, it's Mitch and Cap's wedding. And with their egos, of course, you're going to succeed by getting people to watch it for the laughs. I mean, that's the biggest problem that these number one comedies like Modern Family and Big Bang Theory have right now, especially with their episodes this week, because that writers get so wrapped up in creating this drama to hype the season finale, they forget that their audience is really there for comedy, and it ends up turning viewers away instead of bringing them in. Again, Modern Family hasn't really fallen victim to this throughout season five until this particular episode, but it has during seasons three and four, but Nico believed it was turning into a dramedy. Got hurt their following, much like the Big Bang Theory, because of Lee. But that's an opinion I'll elaborate on when we get to that section. Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of Modern Family? Yeah, and my favorite comedic moments from this week's episode were Jay, Gloria, and Manny's standoff over blood sausage rubbing Stella's belly and pickles, and how each yes. of them actually ended up really enjoying it in the end. Also, Lily's belief that her candy ring was a diamond, and upon finding out that it was not, saying she was going to kill Jackson, who we can assume gave it to her. Phil's comments about Claire's ex-boyfriend, let's just say he took his eyes off the ball, and I stepped in and nailed her in cheap seats. Yes. No, let's not say that. <laughs> And all the answering machine hijinks. That was all pretty good. As for the Jay not going to the wedding thing, I don't actually foresee him not going, but you're correct right. that this was just the writers stupidly trying to force drama going into the finale, and that is not needed in this series. The series thrives on comedy mixed with drama, not the other way around. Like last year, when they focus too much on the drama, it does not work as well as when they focus on the comedy and bring drama into it as well. Right. And again, I just I didn't think it fit Jay's character totally. No, not not the Jay that we've seen developed in this series. Right, right. I mean, if this was the pilot Jay, I'd get it, but not season five Jay. Yeah. Okay, with that, we're going to talk about a Big Bang Theory episode that also kind of had this comedy drama problem. They titled The Gorilla Dissolution. All started with a Big Bang a bad day causes Penny to reevaluate her life choices, including Leonard. Meanwhile, Howard and Bernadette struggle to care for Mrs. Wallowitz, and Raj gets relationship advice from Sheldon. Because I began alluding to it in our modern family section, this episode of The Big Bang Theory cut its moments where it made me laugh. Like when Howard dropped the treadmill he got for his mother down the stairs. On top of her, got Will Wheaton getting himself fired from the serial apis movie by standing up for Penny's job. Even though I felt that scene could have been so much more if it wasn't brought down by the drama between Leonard and Penny. In fact, that's kind of been the theme all season. We've gotten great stuff out of Sheldon, Amy, Raj, got the great stars who have appeared on the show this season. But it's all kind of been brought down by the relationship drama between Leonard and Penny. And I think this episode was the 
the biggest casualty because we had to get over the hump of Leonard and Penny officially getting engaged before the real comedy could begin with Sheldon coming to grips with Leonard getting married. Could how that will affect his relationship with Amy as well as Roger's search for Sheldon. In other words, what I'm trying to say is I think the things that began to show sides of the Big Bang Theory faltering is going to be resolved with Leonard and Penny now getting married. But is it going to be enough to win back the fans who have come up to me because of late, including Magma Hunter's very own Michael J. Putty, saying that they've stopped watching the show because the comedy they're looking for has been replaced by too much drama between Penny and Leonard. Nico, what was your thoughts on this week's Big Bang Theory? And do you think Leonard and Penny getting hitched is going to resolve a lot of the show's problems? Dan, my favorite comedic moments from this week's episode were Will Wheaton getting an audition for yes. Sharknado 2. And, oh, that's right, nothing else because this was not a very funny episode and ended up being a series low in the ratings wow. as well. Instead of being a comedy like it is supposed to be, this episode ended up being the one where Penny and Leonard got engaged and did a piss-poor job of it at that. I mean, it was a de facto engagement and just plain pathetic all around. I mean, if they were going to go ahead and have them get gauge and ruin an episode they might as well have gone big and had a decent proposal this is just plain stupid yeah now as for them getting married dan i think you are correct that maybe hopefully god i hope so think this will resolve some of the major issues you and i have had and have been having about this show prior to this episode and should allow for the show to return to situational humor and geek-based comedy or in other words all the stuff that made us love the show in the first place so yeah i do think that this is going to alleviate some of those problems and hopefully Really, I hope that it goes back to what it was before the whole Leonard and Penny relationship fell apart or went crap. Yeah. So I, I do hope it goes that way, and I think it will. Great. It's kind of like they're going with a lot of the Chuck Lorre shows right now, with more quantity instead of quality. Yeah, I can see that. Because they're signing on this and Two and a Half Men for all these seasons, but Two and a Half Men's kind of been crap. God, this show's going that way. Yeah. And I don't know how long this is going to work for them. Because it's like they got the title of number one comedy. Because they're too comfortable in that place. Because I got news for them. They're losing people. Yeah. Because this episode showed. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully this will work it out. I think the finale is going to be a lot better because it's Sheldon dealing with it. Because that seems to be more entertaining than Leonard or Petty's reactions to anything right now. Yeah. But we'll see. Well, I mean, another reason this one was such a disappointment was because last week was so good with the Star Wars stuff. Yeah. And, I mean, it's tough to follow up something that big, but this was not even an attempt to try and follow up. You know, it was just, it right. was awful. Good. But at the same time, you can't rely on gimmick episodes. Well, no, no. Float either. No, you can't rely on that. But th that was an yes. outstanding gimmick episode or, or yes. theme episode because it wasn't really a gimmick. It's well within the, the, right. the geek comedy that this show is based on. So absolutely perfect for last week. And you're, you're right, though. You can't expect those themed episodes or gimmick episodes to keep this show afloat or keep people coming back to it. Otherwise, you get people only coming for those episodes. Right. You, and this show is proven it can do geek comedy consistently. Yeah. I mean, look at the first, rely on one first five seasons. You know? Right. Exactly. So hopefully it'll work out. We'll see. I think. Okay, with that, we're going to move to the rundown section now. Sci-Fi's home for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. ENT. We know drama. Yeah, we're going to kick things off this week with the Americans episode entitled Stealth.
Philip asked Annalise for help on his latest mission. Could Stan discover something that could bring him closer to the KGB illegals? Things sure are coming to a head on The Americans, a show that's been confidently breezing through its sophomore season like that's not a hard thing to do, because it usually is. Written by Joshua Brand and directed by Gregory Hoblet, this episode's stealth found the Jennings finally experiencing a little domestic peace while the demands of espionage continued to spin recklessly around the couple. It was a solid episode rife with suspenseful tragedy while looking at human frailty as a common entry point for exploitation in other characters. Once more, we started off with Anton Baklanov, back in Russia missing his son, but also not refusing any of the provided comfort ladies, ass and all. It turned out that in order to determine the success of his design for a stealth airplane, Anton needed a program called Echo, and so began Philip and Elizabeth's U.S. marching orders. There was much more to consider, however, isn't there always on this show, as Philip learned from his office bug that Stan and the FBI knew about the illegals program. Elizabeth wanted to go check on Jerry to see what exactly he might have told Stan, and was rather disgusted to find out that he might have discovered his parents' true identity from an American. So what did he divulge? Well, not really anything. But he knew something was up. Oddly enough, though, the orphan teen had been meeting with Kate, who was out of disguise. Kinda made us wonder what was going on there. Seeing as how Jared didn't call Stan, I'm guessing he's been prepped for this sort of thing, maybe by Kate. Everything about Elizabeth's disguise as Anne Chadwick is suspicious, but he's yet to report her to the FBI. Philip took up the official mission by contacting Fred and discovering that a non-accountable expense of $100 million has been factored into the Lockheed budget. Fred put Philip in contact with John Skeevers, played by Zelchko Ivanik, a bitterly divorced ex-aeronautics engineer who helped develop the real-life SR-71 and blamed his cancer on the materials he'd been working with. I love seeing the great Zelchko Ivanik show up, an actor who seems tailor-made for this show, The Americans. There was a heartbreaking aspect to seeing this sad, dying man be used for information by Philip, but that's pretty much usual on this show, and that's just how it often goes with spies. Also, then cut to Philip in what I believe was the series' first fake full beard, sympathizing his way into Skeever's home. Ted, who looked inspired by maybe Shia LaBeouf, brought soup and offered money in exchange for info on radar absorbent material, or RAM. Then Skeevers devolved into some helpful ravings about bats in his head being killed by fumes from microscopic iron ball paint. Also, the Residentura did its part to acquire the needed Echo computer program and pushed a reluctant Nina to step things up with Stan. This show gets a lot of mileage out of people so good at lying, it's hard to tell what's really going on, even for us. Nina going to Stan and telling him the truth essentially about the danger she's in of being tried for treason is one hell of a way for her to presumably keep conning him and to draw him ever closer. Oleg gave Nina a young pioneer's pin just like the one she had as a little girl, but it was hard to tell whether he sought to remind her of her duty or just wanted to do something nice. Behind closed doors, Arkady confided in Oleg that if this most current mission wasn't a success, Nina would be sent back to Moscow to stand trial for treason. Arkady didn't want to relay this information to Nina herself because he needed to be able to watch his own back. However, his offering Oleg a cigarette complete with a long stare implied that Oleg was welcome to tell Nina if he himself didn't mind getting his hands dirty. It's difficult to know who's playing who sometimes and whether Nina is unsure if she trusts herself that she can get the information from Stan and is hedging her bets on both sides by telling Stan of her danger. 
Along those same lines, Oleg brought this information to Nina's attention and advised her to run if she didn't think Stan would betray his own country for her. If it was genuine, it would be sweet that he would lay it all out for her, admitting that it was less for his own benefit than hers. I wonder, though, if he's nudging her the same way he did before the polygraph test. Maybe he knows she really shines under pressure and is hoping that by putting her under this pressure, she's able to convince Stan to give, him, give her the information. For now, it seems Stan has taken the bait. He promised he'd find a way out a way out of this and nothing would ever come between them. It was a more heartfelt speech than he delivered to his own wife, Sandra, who warned Stan about asking affair-related questions. Speaking of which, while Sandra has felt like an extraneous aspect of the show, the writers were unsure what to do with She and Stan had a really great scene t- this week, expertly performed by Susan Meisner and Noah Emmerich. The two perfectly captured the quiet, sad interaction between two people with a lot of history, realizing this is probably the end of their marriage. We haven't really gotten to know the Jennings handler Kate much this season, but suddenly she was at the center of a lot in this episode, and as we discovered, she'd been having her own meetings with Jared and then was captured by Larrick. It all seemed to indicate she would suddenly be given much more importance until she was killed. It seemed a bit of a waste and left her feeling like an unfulfilled character, really the first this series has had. That being said, Larrick continues to be creepy as hell. It was scary seeing how he tied Kate up like that and then the way he just sort of snapped her neck, which was certainly effective both at showing his proficiency with close quarter combat from his SEAL training and his creepiness as a serial killer. Ren Schmidt did well in her role as Kate, though... Kate's death and disappearance along with George's certainly creates a formidable mess for the Jennings to have to clean up now. Thank goodness she left one final toilet message, get Jared out. Another great episode as we head toward the penultimate episode next week with the episode Operation Chronicle. Next we're going to move on to my review of the amazing BBC America clone series Orphan Black with the episode entitled Govern As It Were By Chance. Sarah comes home to search for answers. Kind of with Cosmos' help, she digs into the origins of the uh, clone experiment. Thawne takes her into perilous territory that could cost her more than she realizes. The first rule of war is, and always will be, know your enemy. Right now, Sarah and the clones have so many perceived enemies, it's difficult to tell which one is the greatest threat at any given moment. There's Rachel in the Dyad Institute, there's Henrik in the Prolethians, there's Angie whose drive for answers is getting, getting her ever closer to discovering the truth, and then there's the sickness weakening Cosima. And for a few terrifying moments in Govern as it were by chance, there was Helena. There's also the argument that the clones are their own worst enemy, especially in Allison's case, and some of Sarah's life decisions. This episode delivered some fun material, much of it involving Helena, who finally took a more active role this week. Her escape after Gracie's failed murder attempt was great, complete with the visual of her running through the fallen snow at the farm, past a confused Art, though maybe he could have or should have actually tried to stop her. And of course, the end with her arrival at Rachel's apartment was terrific. The way the bound-up Sarah could only see something chaotic was happening in the other room was very effective, as Helena most definitely did kill Daniel this time. But what really was amazing was the clone face-off afterwards. Even understanding the wish to not overwork Tatiana Maslany this season, it had been a bit frustrating how little the clones had been face-to-face this season. Even Sarah and Cosima's chat in this episode was via Skype. 
But wow, did that Sarah Helena scene deliver. Maslany is scary good at being the scary and creepy Helena, to be sure, but her performance as the absolutely terrified and shocked Sarah is what really stood out in this scene, and the look of disbelief on her face that the woman she shot was coming towards her holding a bloody knife all while she was in a completely vulnerable tied-up position. Oh, just brilliant. Of course, Helena didn't attack Sarah. She embraced her, expertly portrayed by the director, the FX crew, and Maslany, it should be said, as we remember, this was Tatiana Maslany hugging Tatiana Maslany. This embrace also opens the door for a very different dynamic between these two going forward. Many Orphan Black fans adore Helena because she enjoys Jello and carries sugar packets in her pocket. I get it. She's like a child, but like a child who's also a crazy murderer. I like the challenges Helena poses as a character and the role she plays in the mirror of Sarah, but she hasn't yet done anything to prove that she deserves to be pardoned for her crimes. I was very concerned when Henrik and his religious science freaks wanted to use her body for their own agenda because she was being held against her will and forced into unfortunate circumstances she didn't have any control over. She's a clone, but she's still a human being. But I don't necessarily think we should just accept her and open our arms to her because she's been on the receiving end of some terrible developments. And I think there are some fans of the show who look at Helena as if she's a lost puppy without a past that involves being a serial killer. Meanwhile, this episode began to give us a lot more insight into the past as we learned about Rachel's adoptive parents, Susan and Ethan Duncan, meant to be Sarah's actual adoptive parents until plans changed when Sarah was liberated slash kidnapped by someone who gave her to Mrs. S. And Susan and Ethan Duncan seemingly headed up Project Lead. We also met Carlton, an old ally and lover of Mrs. S. Also, in an amusing moment, the term Orphan Black was nearly directly used uh, on the show as Carlton recalled, quote, 20 years ago, you brought an orphan to my door. Put her in the black, you said, as black as it gets. The odd yet really cool title seemingly was explained in that simple throwaway line. There were a few moments of clunky storytelling in this episode. Besides how Daniel was handled in the car crash and then coming back to life, Sarah finding a VHS tape showing Rachel's childhood actually sticking out of the VCR where she could read the label was way too convenient. However, there was a lot to love about this episode as well as we began to piece together much more of what happened in the past for Mrs. S, Sarah, and Rachel. Even better, Helena surviving began to truly pay off in this episode as she made her escape and had a very memorable, amazingly acted reunion with Sarah, all while we ponder what Henrik was planning for Helena, which certainly seems to suggest using her to breed or something. Another great episode. Join us again next week for Ipsa Sentia potestas est which means knowledge itself is power next we're going to move on to my review of the new fx series fargo with the episode entitled eating the blame Molly sets a trap. Meanwhile, Gus thinks about coming clean. Cut Lester returns to work. Last week, as some folks on the internet pointed out, a detail in our Supermarket King's office teased a direct link between the events of the film Fargo and the FX series. That played out in the flashbacks to 1987 in, t- in this week's episode. If you're a fan of the film, the little Easter eggs are a fun treat, but more than that, they speak to one of the show's central themes, the cyclical nature of life. The episode begins with young Stavros Milos and his family attempting to escape a life of debt by fleeing to Minnesota in 1987. 
When they run out of gas, a desperate Stravos has his prayers answered by an ice scraper sticking out of the snow at the side of the road. It's the same ice scraper seen in the 1996 film. In fact, it's the same snowy field and fence where kidnapper Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, buried close to $1 million in cash for later retrieval. Carl met an untimely demise in that film, but now fans know what happened to that money. Stavros Milos, played by Oliver Platt in this series, used it on his way to becoming the supermarket king. Now, as far as Lorne Malvo is concerned, we don't truly evolve as humans, not in the sense of becoming genuinely better at any rate. We simply become slightly altered versions of what we already were, predators and prey. We adapt to avoid detection or to better hunt, but we're all still playing the same kill-or-be-killed jungle game. Lorne's hilarious persona this week as the minister was him taking momentary cover, camouflaging himself to blend into his surroundings so that he could avoid detection. Lester, on the other hand, is quickly learning new ways to deal with potential danger. Initially, I've been pretty irritated by Lester's shifty, atrophied ability to express himself. I thought, why not tell your brother that you're being kidnapped? I mean, what's the reason not to do that? Sure, Lester didn't want to draw attention of the police, but ultimately he did just that later. Perhaps more to the point, mortal peril feels like the moment to scream for help. He can't, though. He simply doesn't have that particular self-defense mechanism. It wasn't so much fight or flight for Lester, but fight then flight, or fight in order to flight, which was actually far more interesting and kind of hilarious. He seemed to relish the opportunity to embrace a little more violence, in fact, when he realized he had that stun gun again. The moment was ultimately a great reflection of a man who simply cannot fully be himself in in the world and take responsibility for his own life. It was Lester's inability to speak up for himself as a human being regularly with his family and act as an animal when necessary with Hess that landed him in this mess in the first place. If only Lester had been able to just once knock Hess out, if only he'd talked to, screamed at, railed against, and eventually left his wife before he was compelled to beat her with a hammer, then Lorne would not be able to have his vicious little hooks in him now. Ultimately, there is no escape for the repercussions of your actions, though. And in the end, Lester ended up right back face to face with the human ice fishers while Stavros Milos was assailed by the wrath of the Lord. Well, Lorne's wrath in any case. The title of this episode refers to a Zen proverb that points to the benefits of quickly and fully taking responsibility for one's actions and missteps, which is a thing that very few of us are able to do. The two gentlemen from Fargo demand a confession before they will be satisfied, but Lester simply cannot admit what he's done, likely even to himself. By the way, those two guys from Fargo are quickly becoming, as a pair, my second favorite character on this series. Their sign language fight in the diner was amazing, and just another reason this show is so great. The fourth episode of Fargo gave us lots to chew on. What's great about this series is that it raises legitimate interesting questions about human nature, but it does so in a very entertaining way. It seems possible that we're watching Lester make a slow evolution from prey to predator, but Lorne Malvo at present remains the unequivocal alpha. Join us next week for my discussion on the episode, The Six Ungraspables. Finally, we're going to wrap up the reviews this week with my review of Grimm with the episode entitled The Inherits. While Trubay encounters a father and son team trying to deliver something to Nick, Nick and Hank encounter Varad agents trying to recover rare Wesson-related artifacts. Meanwhile, Adelaide continues to try and fight her child, forcing Renard to put her under surveillance. Josh, the devoid of grim superpowers freak in his family, inadvertently raised an interesting point during this week's mad hunt for Nick in the episode The Inheritance. When his grim father realized he was dying and needed to bequeath his trunk of awesomeness and his coveted magical key to another 
another Grim, he turned to Nick because Nick was the only one he could find. We know there are other Grims out there, and Josh's father also probably knew that Nick wasn't the only Grim willing to take on this inheritance, but Nick was the one he could most easily track down. Even though meeting Josh and his father was ultimately a positive experience for Nick, the fact that he was so findable harkens back to Aunt Marie's warning about building a life in one place and his mom Kelly Burkhart's good intention absenteeism. This time, it was just a fellow Grimm looking for one last ally in Nick, but Nick's lack of mobility or even some sort of alias or secret identity makes Nick and his loved ones a target. While it's true that he doesn't exactly broadcast his night job to everyone, we've learned that, honestly, if you're a Vesson or a Grimm in Portland, you'll probably know Nick when you see him, and if you want to get some of your and friends together and organize them organize some havoc or just totally destroy nick burkhart's life for whatever reason well pretty much feel free because he's not going anywhere we've seen nick and team grim targeted before repeatedly but this is the first time in a while that grim has openly acknowledged the ease with which nick can be found and his prominence in the grim and Vesson circles in portland even with regard to individuals who've never actually interacted with him like the father and son in this episode or who are particularly active in the secret world themselves i like to think this means we're gearing up for something crazy particularly with trouble's observation that there's some kind of freaky or something mysterious about how three grims were randomly brought together to be in the same place at the same time in portland this episode featured quite a few callbacks to season two and early part of this season three storylines that were relegated sort of to the back burner during Adeline's baby drama and homicidal European road trip. The Verat returned to Portland, as did the mysterious map-making keys that the royals want to get their hands on so badly. My dad mentioned just a week ago that we hadn't talked about the keys in almost the entire season. Also in this episode, Renard put Wu in charge of tailing Adeline, and there was a lot of holding our breath in this episode wondering what the hell renard was thinking in tasking the dangerously close to knowing the truth woo with stalking renard's pissed off vessen baby mama i thought maybe this would be the episode woo finally saw something again and it broke through and he became part of team grim officially also speaking of adeline she's back in the full evil groove with the disappearance of baby diana and it's great but also sad because things really didn't have to be this way you know, I had to roll my eyes a little bit at the fact that she's once again trying to get at Nick through Juliet, or at least we think that's what she's going to try as she's now impersonating Juliet, because it's been such a good season for Juliet to not be a hostage or the weak link or otherwise just the damsel in distress, and also because Adeline and Juliet's begrudging truce during Adeline's time with the Burkhart showed that Adeline had a lot of potential to grow and evolve. People love her character, and she could so easily have joined Team Grimm and not had to go all evil again. There's certainly still hope for Adeline. After all, her new thirst for carnage is driven by a terrible loss and a lot of misinformation painting a very wrong picture in her mind. But like I said, it didn't have to be this way. With only one episode left, Season 3's various threads are beginning to come together and to form sort of a cohesive picture amid all the chaos. This week's episode, The Inheritance, excelled at giving that chaos focus as we head into the season finale next week. Earlier this year, I was concerned about the potential disruption of Grimm's momentum with all those breaks in the second half of the season, and I'm not about to say that they were okay because WTF... 
But in the end, Grimm's momentum is just fine going into the finale, and it looks to be in pretty good position. Join us next week for the finale episode, Blonde Ambition. All right, that's it for this week's reviews. Unfortunately, no voicemails this week. We do really want to hear from some of you guys, so if you want to be a part of the show, you want to leave us some thoughts or comments or maybe a review of one of the shows we haven't started reviewing yet, we would really love to hear from you guys. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us one of those voicemails, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback or a review of one of the many new shows. Hope to hear from some of you soon. All right. With that, it's time to go into our discussion on come next week's episode. Come next week's episode is probably going to be our last come big episode because we've got a lot of season finales coming down the pipe, don't we? Yeah, on next week's episode, we're going to continue to cover spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, the season finales of Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, and of Castle, the series penultimate of Warehouse 13, the season finale of Person of Interest, the penultimate episode of Supernatural and Revolution, and our sitcom section including the penultimate episode of Modern Family and the season finale of The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the penultimate episode of The American an episode of Fargo, Orphan Black, and the season finale of Grimm, along with the season premiere of Penny Dreadful, and maybe even a few more things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website, CrossTheAirways.com. For sure, and we've got some great stuff coming ahead on our spinoff shows, because well available at CrossTheAirways.com, including finale coverage episodes of Arrow on ATA Logmo Hunters, the Arrow podcast, and coverage of the S.H.I.E.L.D. finale with an extra big special episode filled with lots of surprises uh, the Helicarrier podcast covering episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. most notably the show's season finale carried this Tuesday night and also you can check us out got a new home now on the Mix radio station which is an online radio station available the links to the Mix to our website but basically uh, in addition to our iTunes feed our Lipson feed got our regular RSS feed you can listen to us on the mix. Yeah, and basically um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at 6 p.m. in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stipe, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. And I'll let Andy and Michael share with you of that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this book. Also, I recently set it up that there is a player now on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and links, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC and regular MP3 formats. Um, I just figured that would make the things easier for you guys who are confused confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites um, that you can check out and hopefully we'll raise up our listener numbers. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves.gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, as well as the rest of our podcast members. And also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter, or join our circle on Google+. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover, or suggestions on odd shows you'd like to cover. And what number can you call to do that? 773-809-3363. Yes. 
So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. Uh, we love Woo's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio, which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app, and we're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box. Got Android apps, which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, can listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Can also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will let you listen to our podcast episodes. Can that is available on the Amazon Marcus. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, Kadani Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Redstack. Can I tell our next episode? We'll catch you on the airwaves. See everybody. Have a good week. God, watch out for the renegades. Lawman is putting into my running and I'm so far from my home Oh mama I can hear you are crying you're so scared and all alone Hangman is coming down from the gallows and I don't have very long Now return to our regularly scheduled program.